everyone, and welcome to today's episode of the Anti-Genocide Coffee Break, a multinational podcast. My name is Mia, and I will be your host today. I'm so happy to join you today because this is my first time hosting a podcast episode, and I am here to introduce our very special guest, Mr. Serge Tankian. So many of today's listeners may already know our guest, but here is a short introduction for those of you meeting Serge for the first time. Serge Tankian is the frontman and one of the founding members of System of a Down, an alternative metal band known for heavy political lyrics and even heavier instrumentals. Throughout their long and illustrious career spanning more than 25 years, System has released five full-length albums and fan-favorite singles like Chop Suey, Toxicity, and BYOB. As a solo artist, Serge has demonstrated his incredible creativity with classical and jazz and a combination of all of the above. Outside of his musical ventures, Serge is also a visual artist, always seeking a new mode of connecting to his fans. He has published an art and poetry book called Glaring into Oblivion and has scored numerous documentaries. But the never-ending common thread of his art, no matter the medium, is his passion for human rights and creating a better world. In 2011, he was awarded the Armenian Prime Minister's Medal for his lifelong dedication to memorializing the Armenian Genocide. He is also one of the co-founders of the nonprofit political activist organization Axis of Justice alongside fellow musician Tom Morello to encourage other musicians to speak up and fight back against racism and social injustice. This is why we are so fortunate to bring him to the Lemkin Institute today to have a robust conversation about identity, advocacy, and the beauty of art. So welcome to the show. Thank you, Mia. I'm honored to be on. Thank you. Yes, and this has been a few a uh, few months coming to have Serge on the show and we're just glad to have him to have him to join our mission and be part be an honorary member of our team let's just put it that way cool. thank you thank you I appreciate the work that Lemkin Institute has been doing in terms of genocide prevention in, in terms of getting alerts out out there red flag alerts having to do with um you know, uh, uh, genes- possible genocide occurrence, um, specifically in uh, the Armenian enclave of Nagorno-Karabakh, which I'm very involved in, in terms of the activism, in terms of the blockade that we're going to talk about. So I really appreciate the work that you guys are doing. Yes, Thank you very much. So how today's episode will be structured, we will start off with a couple cu- cultural questions just to really set a lighter mood before we get into the heavier topics because as a genocide scholar I'm no stranger to the fact that studying genocide is a very emotional topic and there there is a lot to it that makes you feel a little helpless at times but there's Mm -hmm. also a lot of hope behind continuing the fight and making sure that if we even if there are situations that we can't stop, then at least the world knows what's going on. So to start off with the our first question, so towards the end of the high talks on the issues of the Armenian diaspora in October, which was hosted at a LA Valley College, is that correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah, Los Angeles Valley College, yes. Uh, you said that there were multiple diasporas within the global Armenian community, and you yourself mm-hmm. were born in Lebanon, and you lived there until you were seven, after which time you came to the U.S. 
So from the best of your recollection, what were the main differences between the Lebanese Armenian community and the American Armenian community? And how did those differences shape your own perception of your identity? Uh, the Lebanese Armenian diaspora was primarily, um, you know, genocide survivors and their children uh, from Western Armenia, currently uh, mostly central Turkey. Um, and, you know, uh, American Armenians are a mix of potpourri of, you know, Armenians from Armenia, post-Soviet collapse, um, uh, Western Armenians from the Middle East. Uh, and, and uh, you know, you get a little bit of a lot of stuff. There's uh, an, Ar an American community, an American Armenian community dating back to the 1800s on the East Coast, uh, primarily in Boston, uh, Watertown. Uh, the Central Valley is an early uh, immigrant center of Armenians, um, you know, also around uh, the er early 1900s, turn of the century. So it's it's a it's a different kind of mix of diasporas. Um, but what I was basically saying is that, you know, there are when I say there are multiple diasporas, it, it means that, you know, people grow up in these countries that they weren't inherently connected to, you know, like I was born in Lebanon, but the reason I was in Lebanon is because my grandparents ended up there after the genocide. Um, and they, you know, my, my maternal grandfather was in a, uh, an orphanage and he ended up in a uh, refugee camp in Syria, uh, no, no, through Derzor, the desert, and then in Lebanon. And um, so I was born in a country that I, ha I really didn't have a connection to culturally, you know, and, um, but, uh, the where you grow up has a lot to do with who you are obviously you know um even if you retain your cultural identity your you know first language and all of that so it becomes multiple diasporas armenians that have immigrated to russia for example and grew up there have it's it's kind of a, quite a different diaspora than an american armenian growing up in los angeles for example but we all have the same cares and worries having to do with armenia proper our cultural identity um, who we are, uh, that doesn't change, but it, it is multiple diasporas, yeah. Mm -hmm. So uh, in those seven years, you had a very, I'm assuming you had a very close, tight-knit family and your experiences mm -hmm. with that. So how <clears throat> were customs and traditions passed down in your family and in what ways do you continue that with your own? Um. You know, that's interesting. Um, in in the, I've I've realized in countries that are predominantly more diverse than the Armenian culture. So if you're born in a, uh, you know, an Arabic country, different language, different religion, uh, you know, uh, or in Lebanon, in, in Lebanon's case, multiple religions. But you know, uh, there's more of a uh, yearning to keep the original identity, to keep the original culture, um, uh, because you're always different, you know? In a Western country where you, there, are, there are more freedoms, for example, um, there is a little more, a little less of a yearning to kind of keep your culture in a way, you know, because you kind of easily can get, you know, um, uh, whitewashed within the culture itself, you know, your cultural, mm -hmm. you know, so it's 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 different in that way. Um, how we kept our traditions and cultures was primarily through family, family events and the food and and the you know the stories of our of our culture, the history. Um, my grandparents were very 
you know, um, but I also, you know, we're very um, uh, adamant about teaching us their lives, what would happen in their life, their stories, their family stories. But also, I went to an Armenian school in Los Angeles. So I grew up within the confines, the warm confines of the Armenian community. So I had the ability to really dive deep into our culture, our language, uh, history, cause, etc. Um, yeah. And I have heard of the famed Little Armenia in the L.A. Mm. area. Mm. So when your family uh, came there in the 1970s, did Little Armenia exist yet or was it still growing? It was still growing. It wasn't called Little Armenia and there weren't as many Armenians as there would be now um, in Hollywood. Uh, but that's where we first settled, actually. And for three or four years, I think, before we moved out to areas in the greater Los Angeles area, and uh, but uh, yeah, it wasn't really known as Little Armenia, and there weren't as many Armenians at the time in the seventies. There were mm -hmm. some. And the <clears throat> last one related to cultural questions before we get to the heavier subjects. So to set the lighter mood, before I do, what are your main moments of euphoria about your identity, like those moments where you're just really proud to be Armenian? Hmm. That's a very good question. Um, most people are proud when they have um, sport victories and, you know, like their, their cultural identity is tied into World Cup soccer games and stuff like that. I've never been that much into sports being an artist. Um, so I guess my proudest moments come when I see Armenians uh, stand out and succeed and, and create something that's never been created before. You know, Armenians are known to be inventors uh, in, in lots of ways. There's a whole list online of things Armenians create. Armenians have created um, from the MRI machine to like God knows so many things, color TV and, and whatnot. And so I'm, I'm proud of those things. Like there's, you know, because it, it provides something out of our culture for all of humanity and the world. Mm -hmm. And the main reason why I wanted to ask that question is that I had been thinking about it over the past couple of days. And I, I think that it would be a good area for the research to expand, but understanding how descendants of people groups with genocidal histories, how their feelings about their identity cross over a broad a broad range and broader than, you know, maybe groups that don't have similar histories. So on one mm -hmm. hand, there's the almost like dysphoria that comes comes along when you see like new heavy news stories, uh, like the situation in Artsakh or um, high crime rates. If there's a community with high crime rates and it's connected to that genocidal trauma. But then on the mm -hmm. other hand, there are those fleet, those bursts of euphoria where you see something that you can relate to or you meet someone else that you can relate to and you just have those conversations and it just clicks. Like even if you're perfect strangers, there's something to bring you together. Absolutely. One, one thing I do want to mention is the effects of genocidal trauma I've noticed on my own people have two varying different reactions in terms of growth um, of communities. One is 
um, absolutely kind of not thinking about the past and just being another, right? So that you don't have to deal with the trauma of it. Earlier, there was a lot of that. Um, and that's one way of coping, I guess. Um, and I'm sure it's the same with other communities that have experienced genocide throughout their history. And the other way is to embrace it and to empathize with others who are going through injustice. And I see that also in our community. I see a growth of that in our community and other communities. And I, I find those two really diverse coping methods really interesting. Mm -hmm. And I'm Native <clears throat> American myself, so that was that's one thing that I've been thinking about since I actually actually since I started uh, genocide mm -hmm. studies because I hadn't really thought of it that way. It's such a long history that it's just kind of a thing that's always been there. Mm -hmm. So trying to understand how hundreds of years of that have culminated into myself and other people like me who are just trying to get by in the world. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think, you know, understanding your roots, what happened with Native Americans, um, you know, in North America, you know, uh, indigenous people in South America, indigenous people, you know, in Australia. Um, it's a little different in New Zealand where I'm at right now, because, you know, the Maori population have a much better, and you know, they're still trivialities and issues with the Waitangi Treaty, but there's, you know, they have it a lot better than most uh, indigenous uh, post-colonial cultures. Um, so it's it's really, really hard. Um, and the fact that, you know, we still see some fact, a lot of suffering going on with indigenous communities, um, which are, you know, uh, disadvantaged in, in both in terms of the economic arena, <clears throat> as well as geographical. Um, it, that is really difficult. That really raises a lot of questions and the need for, um, you know, uh, the need for some type of equitable, mm, you know, I, I don't want to, you know, equitable kind of uh, way of dealing with things today. Mm -hmm. And that's actually a perfect transition into the first advocacy questions. questions. So you've talked a lot about your grandparents experience during the Armenian genocide and that's always been a part of your that's been a part of your history since you were young so if you are comfortable with uh, with sharing your thoughts can you speak a bit on how you processed learning about that history from for uh, for the first time so um my grandparents waited until we were at a certain age where we can start dealing with some of these uh stories right um and you know um and you know specifically my grandfather and grandmother uh, my maternal grandfather and grandmother who i knew better than my paternal grandparents because my paternal grandfather died when my dad was six seven years old so um so i you know um they they would tell us stories about their family at first just you know very non you know um not dark stories about the genocide but but just about their family and and this that just to kind of introduce us about just so we know who they were right um but there is it comes a point where those stories end um i've always said it you know uh when when i was in high school and we were supposed to do a family tree it just ends at one point like i can't mm -hmm. go further and further because there's no information the, all those people are dead um 
not just because of the age and generational difference, but because they were killed. And so there's there's less information about who these people were, you know. Um, so my family tree is only a few generations, basically. And and, mm-hmm. and that that I find to be very sad for anybody. Um, yes. But when I was at the at the age, they they started telling me more of the stories, and and at the same time, I was reading books and learning history, etc., Armenian history and, and world history. <laughs> so, um, and 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 what and one of the one of the, the one of the things I've done in my life that I'm extremely proud of is when my grandfather was in his early 80s and still very very much um, psychologically intact. Um, we brought in an organization that does survivor testimonies. Um, they were called genocideproject.org. They came in and they did these long, long interviews with him on tape. At the same time, I had a little video camera. I recorded him for these long, long sessions. So we have this incredible in-depth uh, life story of my grandfather because of it. Um, his childhood, um, you know, his family, the genocide, uh, getting resettled in Lebanon and what he what he worked what he did for work like everything everything how he met my grandmother and that is so valuable I, I actually made DVDs at the time and gave it to each of my uncles and aunts so each family has this story mm-hmm. um I find that to be really important to do with our elders um and uh through those we were able to learn a lot of information about the the genocide and his personal kind of, you know, um, story uh, of survival. And uh, we've been able to use that in books, in documentaries like Screamers and and different things in terms of bringing his story to life. Mm -hmm. And uh, you've also talked about in your concerts, whenever you give the speech where you say, we're here to tell you these things and rock you at the same time. You've also mentioned in that and that mentioned the story of your grandmother and how she was saved by a Turkish mayor during the genocide. And that relates really closely to one of my main study interests, which is the bystander effect in genocide. So can you tell us more about your thoughts on that Samaritan phenomenon and how it can be fostered better? Yeah, I think, I think while we, um, deplore and condemn genocidal regimes and uh, or those protecting those genocidal regimes, including denialists that are alive today. Um, we have to celebrate the Schindlers of the world, you know, the people that have put their lives on the line to uh, save people out of their conscience, out of their goodness of being human beings, proper human beings. And I think that is always the case. Um, uh, and, and, you know, we've, I've, We've done that with the Armenian genocide. I don't. I don't want to say we, but numerous nonprofit organizations have highlighted particular saviors of, you know, Armenian refugees. Um, and I think that's really important because it kind of it. It's this is not you know condemning a country like Turkey for the genocide of their ancestors and for their own government's you know uh, uh, denialism. Uh, is, is one thing, but they, they use that as a way of creating sides. Like, you know, uh, we're against it, you're for it kind of thing. It's not that, these are these are humans that perished. One and a half million Armenians died and hundreds of thousands of Assyrians and Greeks, and, you know, uh, during the Ottoman, the, during the first genocide of the 20th century in the Ottoman, Ottoman Empire. So 
we need to also highlight those people. It's it's important to do so. And in understanding that this is not about what side I'm on. This is about the fact that this tragedy happened and some people rose to the occasion and the majority did not. Uh, just as, as the same as in the Holocaust, obviously. Yes. And one reason why I'm so focused on the bystander effect is because I feel that my own genocide advocacy is very compassion based. So not just compassion for the descendants and for the victims themselves, but trying to connect to those people who would want to speak up, but feel that they might be ostracized if they do so. Mm -hmm. And understanding that in every situation, there are people who put their humanity first and they recognize when things aren't okay and it also Absolutely. highlights that there can be positive glimpses even in the darkest parts of humanity so Absolutely. uh jumping down a little bit more to your musical advocacy so mm -hmm. there are a lot of politically active music artists across all genres and specifically in the rock scene but you're one of the only bands to really speak about genocide specifically because genocide is still very much considered a taboo word, not just in the mm -hmm. social sphere, but also in the at, in advocacy spheres and at the international level. So considering your broad range of lyrical topics, what's the main difference between the writing process of songs like Prison Song and BYOB that address domestic American issues versus the American-centric songs like Holy Mountains or Protect the Land? Armenia-centric songs, yeah. Um, look, I mean, there aren't issues except for the lyrical uh, diversity, right? Um, and what what we should talk about is the commonality is basically, you know, using music and art for, you know, uh, reaching for a more uh, egalitarian world. Right. Um, and, and fighting against injustice. Um, you know, the, the store, my personal, you know, uh, journey and growing up in a de well-known democracy like the United States where, Genocide recognition was taboo by the government because of their connections to Turkey, a NATO ally, etc. Um, made me realize that there are so many other injustices that are hidden under the carpet be because of political expediency or, or economic interests or geopolitical interests. And so it made me an activist across the board for many causes, not just for human rights, but, you know, the environment, animal rights. And it just... The, it, it's a level level of compassion that kind of you know goes through your spirit and 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 it becomes you start understanding these things better in a way. Um, I don't know if I answered your question correctly, but yeah, that's. Uh, I I think that was um good enough uh interpretation of it because when okay. I was when I was writing it and when I listen to system songs, I think about how they could be categorized so they're all mm -hmm. politic they're all politically heavy they're all very forward with not their all. message but they're well yeah not all um yeah but there are the i think about them in terms of the domestic issues in terms of the international mm -hmm. issues with war in terms of the 
your focus on the Armenian genocide and how they all come together to create that one sound yeah. and that one image. Yeah, all injustice in, in, in that sense, it's connected because they all have to do with injustice, whether they're domestic, you know, US based or international or historical. Um, but I do have to say that one thing that separates us from other bands that are wholly political is our ability to be stream of consciousness, humorous. We have plenty of songs about love and jumping up and down on a pogo stick and, you know, whatever you want to call it. So the band is really multidimensional in that way. And I think it's part of its success because uh, it becomes less preachy. It becomes more enjoyable. And that is the success of, you know, uh, an artist like Bob Marley. You know, mm -hmm. um, Bob Marley spoke about very important, heavy topics while making you dance in a positive way. And that is genius in terms of the arts. For this interview, I was uh, very focused on watching old interviews, some fan-made documentaries on YouTube, and music videos to, um, to understand what I wanted to bring to the conversation. So mm -hmm. I for, for now, I want to <clears throat> talk about specifically Protect the Land and Genocidal Humanoids. They came on the mm -hmm. same EP in November 2020 as part of your Art for Artsakh uh, mm -hmm. fundraiser. So in the in the music videos, you used a lot of imagery, not just for Armenian audi audiences to recognize, but for non-Armenian audiences to see for the first time. So the purple flowers blooming from the rubble and genocidal humanoids and the aerial scenes in Protect the Land. So can you give an explanation about your creative process when you were making these music videos? Well, I, I didn't make the music videos myself. We had amazing directors, animators. Um, Shavo generally from the band is very involved with the visuals of the band. And so, you know, I I can't really tell you that it's more their vision than, than mine or even ours as a band, but we approved it obviously. Um, and, you know, uh, a good friend of mine, Ara Sujian helped us uh, put together the team for Protect the Land. We've worked with him before on, on numerous music videos. Um, and, you know, it, it just, the important thing was to emotionally drive the point home, you know, uh, that these people, you know, when <clears throat> when you see headlines, uh, they usually are, uh, you know, there there's, a, there's this, there's this really messed up both sidism that exists, you know, an outbreak mm -hmm. broke out, you know, between these two countries on the border, border skirmishes, like these words kind of actually hurt uh, victims because what they do is uh, they don't have enough journalism integrity to actually say the truth and saying this person attacked this person and this is how it happened and this is what's going on and these people, you know, and, and that is the problem. That is the problem. Um, this is a result of centuries, not centuries, but decades of cutting uh, investigative journalism from more sensational commercial journalism, I guess. And and uh, but you know, getting back to the point, I think you know. Uh, so for us, <clears throat> it was very important for us to have an impact on the non-Armenian 
uh, world community and let them know that this is like a, a huge attack by Azerbaijan and Turkey that are trying to basically not just take over land, but decimate and ethnically cleanse the region of Nagorno-Karabakh. Um, part of the problem was Azerbaijan not only attacked with military equipment, but they also attacked with bots and a huge, you know, decades-long uh, caviar diplom diplomacy throughout Europe and, and the West for them to have a lot of, you know, uh, parliamentarians and whatnot that were on their payroll, which which a lot of whom have gone to jail and have been discovered from Germany and part of the European Parliament to even the United States Congress. Hmm. So, you know, I, so for System of Down, it was really important for us. We hadn't put out music in 15 years. It was important for the world to know what our people were going through because the feelings of being victimized by genocide were very much the same, you know, uh, they, you know, we weren't being attacked by Belgium. We were being attacked by uh, two dictatorships uh, aligned with uh, both denying the Armenian genocide, both uh, aggressively wanting to kill, you know. And so those feelings were there, you know. Uh, it's not like the Republic of Turkey recognized the genocide, made reparations, and then decided to attack Armenia. Just the opposite, you know. They've been on that same wavelength of denial and, and anger and threatening. In fact, Erdogan, uh, until recently, has threatened Armenians uh, uh, with, with, with words of genocide by saying that, uh, don't, you know, don't forget calling us leftovers of the sword, which is a term used during the genocide in, in early 1900s, um, which leftovers of the sword are the name given to survivors of genocide. And he's used that, that word with us, threatening us uh, publicly, right? NATO ally, Turkey. So it's we're we're in a very Armenia is a very compromised geopolitical state um, with uh, an ally in Russia that we can no longer trust because of their geopolitical connection to Turkey and Azerbaijan, through which they are repackaging Russian oil and send, selling it to Europe without Europe feeling hypocritical, apparently. Um, it puts it puts Armenia in a very and and the you know Republic of Nagorno-Karabakh Artsakh in a very compromising situation, and uh, we'll see what happens. I, you know we didn't really talk about it, but you know there's a blockade of 120,000 people living in Nagorno-Karabakh, which we call Artsakh in Armenian, um, and by Azeri supposed eco-activists, primarily uh, uh, tied to the Azerbaijani government and the dictator in Baku. Um, and Russian peacekeepers, the combination of them are basically closing the only lifeline road going into um, nagorno karabakh where these people have diminished food reserves, uh, no medicine, uh, no, uh, you know, proper health care outside of their own community for emergencies and surgeries and all of this stuff. And, and, and they're at the brink of starvation while Azerbaijan has been cutting out, cutting off their gas, their electricity. Um, because a lot of those lines go through that road and, or territory that Azerbaijan now controls after the 2020 uh, second Nagorno-Karabakh war. Very, very dangerous situation. You guys have obviously um, publicized it and made clear that this is a uh, humanitarian catastrophe and there's a red alert for genocide and ethnic cleansing that uh, could happen in Nagorno-Karabakh if this situation persists. Mm -hmm. And um, speaking of when you were mentioning the, la 
the language that lines use that was a that was actually a statement that we as the Lemkin Institute had put together in October we started it a couple days after the September 13th attack just because we all had on news notifications for Armenia to keep up with what was going on at the time and we kept seeing this this common thread of border skirmish clash flare-ups and there were even a couple headlines I saw that had language that you would use when you're talking about a fight between celebrities online which right. was very extremely diminishing I don't even think mm-hmm. I have to explain that for the audience listening when this episode goes right. up so what are you uh, do you have any more thoughts on the western framing of armenia security is- issues in general and how can western journalists and other activist groups improve their coverage of armenia related stories um i think first letting people know about the blockade is very important of you know um uh and and letting people understand the acute situation of these people that uh, could, you know, uh, are, are in a very dire situation. The awareness is very important. We are starting to get that in some Western press. New York Times just did an article. The Economist did an article. Um, but it took, you know, about 40 days of people being blockaded, which is a long time for a huge community of 120,000 people. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, so it is starting to get out there. But is that enough? I think you know, uh, I think there's got to be more investigative journalism. I think people need to go down there, send people down and actually investigate what's going on, even if they're not allowed into Artsakh, uh, to be able to go on the road and speak to the pseudo eco-activists that are really representatives of the Azadi dictatorship and, and show the hypocrisy, you know, of, of what's going on and 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 show um, the world what's going on. So, on, you know, uh, and... <clears throat> And not, you know, it, it, not listening to uh, propaganda from Azerbaijan, a country that has been harboring uh, terrorists during the 2020 war, Sir, you know, terrorists from Syria that they've been using to attack <clears throat> Armenia and, and uh, Nagorno-Karabakh. Uh, you know, they have a huge disinformation campaign that uh, if, if you're press in the, if you're a journalist in the West and you're not careful, you can fall into, you know, the wrong type of information. Uh, they've been pushing the point that Armenia has been basically a lackey of Russia for all these years, where in reality, Armenia was a Soviet republic, not even by choice, because they're only, they were about to get invaded by Kemal Ataturk's forces, Turkey, in 1920. And they either had to pick the genocidal campaign next door that the people that had killed one and a half million of our people, or, you know, give our give our uh, governance to the Russians. I mean, that's what happened in 1921. That is the way Armenia became a Soviet Republic, not by choice, um, but but for survival. And, you know, when the Soviet Union collapsed, Armenia's only, uh, if, if Turkey was not a NATO ally, the picture would be different. But because Turkey is a NATO ally uh, on the side of the West, Armenia had to have a defense agreement with you know, Russia to protect itself from Turkey, not from the West. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Armenia Armenia is a democratic country, one of the few democratic countries in the region, surrounded by um, a lot of authoritarian dictatorships. Um, and, 
you know, it is more culturally closer to the West and Europe than, you know, most nations, most people in that area. And so, you know, uh, it's, it's very, you know, um, it's, 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 it's a really trying time for Armenia geopolitically. Um, and, and, you know, in terms of survival. Mm -hmm. And I, I think we have time for <clears throat> one more question before we transition into the uh, closure. So uh, in reference to the October 12th statement on Maroon Berets 2030, the RPG game that centers around a near a near future war with with our rebel Armenian forces and how that game simulated a lot of things that were going on uh, going on around the same time like the torture of the POWs and the and the civilians and we drew similarities to games like Call of Duty and Call mm -hmm. of Duty was popular during the Iraq war when it was all over the news and then there was this game at the same time and putting those two together and then the same thing with Maroon Berets and the September 13th attack and everything leading up to it. So as an artist who openly criticized the wars that were simulated in and around Call of Duty, what's your impression on the potential of Maroon Berets as a tool for future violence? Well, first, let me gently um, correct you in terms of the word Armenian rebels. These people have been living on those lands for thousands of years. They're not rebelling against rebelling against anything. They're being invaded by Azerbaijan and killed. Um, so uh, that's really important to set the record straight with that because they're they're called ethnic Armenians. They're called rebels. They're called all these things. They're people that have been living. They are they are the oldest Armenian community living on you know the oldest indigenous Armenian lands that we have around the world right now. You know that's that's the reality of it. Uh, these games are. Uh, harmful because what they do is they are part of a fabric of uh, dehumanizing others, the others, right? And that is a way of uh, basically feeding public frenzy against another type of minority or ethnicity. Uh, we've seen that in Azerbaijan without video games. What they do is even more, you know, direct. And what they do is teach their children from kindergarten at a very young age that their enemies are Armenians, that Armenians are these others, that they're monsters, that they're these things and those things. And they have created <clears throat> a nation of racists against my people living next door. Um, and, you know, uh, Azerbaijan is a dictatorship. It doesn't, it, it, it's a very poor country, except for the nobility and the Aliyev family who live extremely lavishly with billions of dollars in assets. And, you know, um, and so they have used racism and nationalism as a way of kind of keeping their people at bay and themselves in power. The war itself was a way of keeping them in power in 2020. Um, so we have to be aware of all these things. Um, these games, you know, uh, there are many games. There are many, you know, fighting games and stuff like that. But you can tell from the makers where they're originating from, what the, you know, uh, what the goal was. Um, I'll tell you a short story. Years ago, Tom Morello and myself were actually um, invited to partake musically as in part of such a game. Um, and, you know, uh, 
you know, and they wanted to use our music for it um, or have us write music for it together. And he sent it to me and I sent it to him and, and he's like, what do you think? What, you know, we're, we're discussing it. And we realized that there are these hints of racism, these hints of the other and dehumanization of those cultures within that particular game, which was a huge name brand game. And I'm not going to name it. Um, and we both declined to work on it. Um, so, you know, you have to be very careful. It's not like I'm against these games or anything like that. Um, I grew up playing video games, but you have to be aware of what's being used as propaganda and what's not. And uh, before we transition into the last <clears throat> question, I would like to go on direct <clears throat> on the record to apologize for that previous wording. And thank you for <laughs> pushing me in the right direction. And that actually okay. is a good, good transition for our final question. So this conversation <clears throat> was enlightening for me, and we hope that it was enlightening to our audience as well to learn more about you as a person as an ad and as an advocate. From a personal perspective, I'm still fairly young and new in my career, so I recognize that there's still much to understand, like my previous wording. So as a Western activist, I recognize that I am an outsider looking in no matter the situation. So what advice do you have for non-Armenian activists and genocide prevention scholars to improve their allyship to the Armenian community? First of all, you're a person with a big heart who's doing amazing work in an international nonprofit organization that's doing incredible work. So don't limit your yourself with where you come from and what, you know, how you perceive that. So thank you, first and foremost. Second, um, you know, I mean, awareness is first. Uh, acting locally is always important as well in terms of compassion and and work we do as activists around the world. Um, in in this in in the manner of specific, I don't care if people learn more about me through this interview or not. I want them to go to anca.org in the U.S. and look at ways of <clears throat> uh, and taking action. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, to see if they can, you know, write to their congressperson. There are easy ways uh, with a couple of clicks that you can write to your congressman or congresswoman and let them know that you care about this topic, the blockade of Artsakh, the blockade of Nagorno-Karabakh. Um, there's also another website called saveartsakh.org. We just did a little PSA for them yesterday. Um, same thing. There are links there that you can go and see how you can be involved. I think it's important to act. Um, I think it's, you know, and that is how these things are prevented. When there's enough public pressure from around the world, the governments themselves put pressure on the dictatorial regimes. And then you can see some action. But until we have a coalition of countries at the UN that create an enforceable committee to deal with genocide, to deal with the Genocide Convention. The Genocide Convention was signed many, many years ago, but there's no enforcement of it. You know, something where if, if there's a risk of genocide, then all countries suddenly have these red alerts and that if they're allies with this particular dictatorial and or genocidal regime, then the world puts pressure on those people and says, you need to cut your links. You need to make it clear. Like, some kind of enforcement, some kind of agreed upon enforcement, you know, until we put, you know, people over profits, this is not going to end. Genocide will continue. Yazidis were killed by ISIS in the same desert that my 
descendants perished in. So I always think of that Der Elzor desert in Syria, which was part of the Ottoman Empire in 1915, as a desert with multiple layers of bones, with sand in between. I mean, how could these things be happening now? And how could they be happening in the exact same place? That is the most strongest condemnation of humanity ever. Yes. So thank you once again for joining us on today's episode of the Anti-Genocide Coffee Break. And for our listeners, that was Mr. Serge Tonkin. My pleasure, Mia. Thank you for having me on. I appreciate it. And good work with the Lemkin Institute. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.